The, the text that I'll be preaching from today is actually Romans 12, 1. Uh, I had in the bulletin two. I started with two. Uh, about halfway through the first section, I was like, how did I get all of this out of this verse? And then I realized it was the wrong verse. So the text is actually Romans 12, 1. And this is what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for calling us out of the world and into your presence to indeed come and worship you today. We pray, Father, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would expose, Father, our idols, that you would expose the darkness in our hearts, that you would, in fact, comfort us in our grief. I pray, Father, that you would be here with us today, that you would feed us, that you would shepherd us as you always have. We thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And amen. amen. All right, so what we're doing is we're continuing our study of Christian discipleship. We recall, of course, that discipleship is not primarily about what we are doing in the process of discipleship, but about what God is doing. Jesus came in the image and likeness of man to remake man in the image and likeness of God. You've heard me say that now probably 30 times. That's the theme. He came in the image and likeness of man to remake man in the image and likeness of God. He's transforming us by degrees from glory to glory until we stand with him in heaven as new beings, resurrected, holy, eternal, fully unified with Father, Son, and Spirit. That's where he's leading us. That's where he's taking us. Discipleship is the process by which the triune God remakes us into images of himself. And so what role does worship play in this process? Now, when you hear the word worship, most of you probably think of the Sunday morning service or even just the music that we sing at the Sunday morning service. But that actually is not what worship is. Worship is not this service. This is a worship service That word worship has come to mean that, essentially praise, adoration. But that's not what the word worship actually means. Um, And the fact that we use that word worship the way we do now makes it very difficult when we go into the Bible and we read the word worship there. I think there's a lot of confusion for us about what we're really talking about when we're talking about worship. Okay, Certainly, Christ and the apostles envisioned something much grander and richer than a set of rituals that we perform once a week. They certainly, when they talk about worship, were not simply talking about music. Worship is not praise, but praise flows out of our worship. It's an extension of it. Those who are worshipers of God praise him. Those who are worshipers of God lift him up in adoration. That is true. But to to confuse one for the other is a mistake that we make. Understanding what worship is is crucial to being a human being. We are used to referring to mankind as homo sapiens. How many of you guys have heard that before? Right? When we talk about man scientifically, we get into the academy, we talk about homo sapiens. Thinking man, that's what that means. Thinking man, rational man. This is the enlightened view of us. Man is a rational being, and man's reason is what separates him from the lower beasts. But that's actually not how the Bible describes man. In the Bible, man is a homo Adoron, a homo Adoron, a worshiping man. Adam was made to worship God. Man was made to worship God. But Adam replaced the true God with the idol of Satan, and man has been worshiping false gods ever since. See, worship is not an action, but a state of being. It's relational, and it's one part of God's dynamic plan of remaking us. 
We were made to worship, but fallen and sinful, we don't worship the living God because, as Calvin has said, our minds are perpetual forges of idols. Perpetual forges of idols. Listen here, listen here. It's like a little factory. And all it does, it, put, it just distributes idols. That's what we do. We make them. We're a factory of them. So we have to confront our idols and realize what worshiping then is pre- that worshiping them is preventing us from following Jesus wholeheartedly. Okay, you remember the last sermon I was here I preached? Peter, thank God, asked this question. Why can't I follow you? Okay, the reason was he had an idol that was blocking his way. So that's, that's what I want us, this is where we're going to now, an extension of that, we're going to dig into this. I want all of you going away from here saying, Jesus, why can't I follow you? What is the idol in my way? What am I worshiping that is preventing me from worshiping you? What worship is and what worship does within the process of discipleship is what I would like you to meditate on today and this week. Because, and this is crucial, you become like what you worship. Okay, God doesn't need your worship. You coming here to worship him, you going into the world and worshiping him, gives him nothing. Does not add a single thing to what he already has. Now, he's pleased with it, but it doesn't really give him anything. It gives you something. When you worship, something is happening to you. You're getting something, not him. And again, this is another thing we get very confused about this. We think, oh, look, we're going to go and give our worship to God, and he's going to accept it. And man, it's going to be beautiful. And that's all true, but it's except for one part. He's not getting anything from it. You're getting something from it. Worship does something to you. It does something for you. Now, this is the crucial part, though. Worship is forming. It shapes you, whether you worship an idol or not. Worship works the same way no matter what you're worshiping. If you worship the triune God, you become like the triune God. If you worship golden statues, you become like golden statues. If you worship the Seahawks, you become like the Seahawks. That's weird. We'll get into that. As G.K. Beale states in his book, he actually wrote a book called We Become Like What We Worship. That's funny. That's what the title of the book is. He says this, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Okay, what we revere, we resemble, for ruin or restoration. We worship gods made in our own image instead of the God who made us in his image. Whatever we worship, it is affecting what we are, and it's affecting what we're becoming. It's affecting what we're becoming. Worship isn't as much about what we're doing for God, but more about what God is doing to you, what the God you worship is doing to you. We worship idols made by our own hands. Now, this is many of us could struggle with this. How many of you have ever made a gold statue and then bowed down and worshipped it? Nobody. Uh, I sometimes want to worship my X-Wing Lego fighter that I built with my own hands because I love it. That's the closest thing that we really come to. But if you stop and think about it, right, when you go to the gym and you're exercising, you're shaping your body, which can become an idol, right? Foodies who just love food make the food. We're so easily convinced that because we don't make little tiny statues that we aren't making little tiny idols in our lives. But that's not true. You make many of the idols. I'm convinced of it now. That idols haven't really changed. It's just what we make is different, right? I, I have literally seen, right, if you go over to someone's home, 
And they have that home entertainment center. They built that. And they love to tell you how they built it. Look at these speakers I got here. Look at the TV I got there. Right? He constructed that thing. Now, they don't go right out and bow down and worship it, but I think if nobody was around, maybe they'd think about it. Now, you have a God or gods. You do. And you worship them. And by doing so, you are becoming like the thing you worship. If you worship Jesus, then you are becoming like Jesus. Everyone says, good, solid. But if pop culture is your God, or sports culture is your God, or fitness is your God, or if your spouse is your God, or money is your God, then you are becoming like the thing you are worshiping. By worshiping God, God remakes you into the image of himself. Therefore, who or what your God is is a, is a crucial question, isn't it? I'm going to break this down into several parts here. And then we're going to look at each part, and then I'm going to put them back together at the end. And hopefully by then, we'll have a better understanding of ourselves and our relationship to idols, our relationship to the triune God, our relationship to worship and discipleship. Okay? By worshiping God, God remakes us into images of God. I'm going to break that down now into three parts. What is worship? What is a God? And what does worship do? Now, some of you may know because I just told you in the introduction, but there's a great deal more to say about each of these things. So first, what is worship? What is it? It's not singing. It's not that. The main word in the Old and the New Testament a Hebrew word and a Greek word. They come from the same, the word meaning the same thing. Okay? The Old Testament word and the New Testament word in Hebrew and Greek for worship originally refer to the service of slaves or hired servants. Isn't that interesting? Two cultures, two languages, and yet the word for worship comes from the same thing. The service of slaves or hired servants. Think about that. Worship is the service of a slave or a hired servant. That's what it is. Now, I'm with you guys. That's not what we mean when we say worship. I don't think I've ever used the word that way. Have any of you ever used the word that way? I, I would say no. I, I'm rather shocked to find out <laughs> that this is what it means. To worship is to serve. Worshiping Jesus is to be continually in the service of Jesus. This means it is not mere weekly occurrence. It is not brief. It's not a short list of rituals, okay? If you're in the service of Jesus, it's a way of life. It's a way of life. Douglas Wilson defines worship as glad service. The New Bible Dictionary defines it as any kind of interaction between God and his people, which as Romans 12.1 states, is the expression of spiritual attitudes which should characterize God's people at all times. Spiritual attitudes that define us as a people at all times. Now, that's a far cry from how the, how the, the way that we use the word worship. To follow Jesus is to be continually in his service. That's what worshiping means, to serve him like a hired servant or a slave. A servant's focus is always the command and need of the master. If Jesus is our master and we are his servants, then worship is a daily, hourly occurrence. Worship characterizes the entire Christian life. Right? Think about it. When does a servant ever have time off? We've all seen Downton Abbey, I'm sure, at this point. And where do the servants in the lower portion of the house ever get free time? They're always at the beck and call of the master, the lady and the Lord. Right? If it's the middle of the night and lady so-and-so wants some toast, she sends a girl to go fetch her some toast. Right? This is, you're in the continual service of the Lord. That's what being a servant is. 
slave is more extreme even, right? A slave, they're absolutely under the control of the, the master's will. Okay? That's what worship is. That's what worship is. Doxology, which is praise, is often confused for worship. But stopping and giving praise to God is not worship. It's natural. It's a natural extension of your worship. If you're in the service of the Lord, and you are stopping from time to time to say, like, you are an awesome God. I love doing this work for you. That's praise. That's not worship. Okay? We go about our days and occasionally kind of throw a little something towards God and think that means we're worshiping him. But our occasional praise isn't worship. It's not. Praise is an act. Worship is a lifestyle. Praise is an act. Worship is a lifestyle. To better understand this concept, let's consider a few things from the scriptures. What did the priests do in the temple? What did they do? The temple being God's house. Okay? In 2 Samuel, it's referred to as God's house. Now, the Levitical priests are instructed in Numbers 18.7, And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. Priests are put into the household of God to serve. That's what they're meant to do. God built a house and put house servants in it. The priests continually served the Lord's house, even in shifts, as we learn in Luke. Right? There was always priests serving in God's house. It was continual. They did it in shifts to make sure that there was always somebody there to take care of the temple and the things in it and the things of God. The incense never went out. The fires never went out. There was always bread. There was always sacrifices. Okay? Now, you all think, okay, if you're talking about worship, that makes sense. That's what a priest does. Right? So, okay, so you're making the point that priests should be serving the Lord all the time. Well, hold on a second. There's a connection here between priests and the priesthood of all believers. Mankind. Okay? What God is making is a new humanity. And that humanity is a priesthood of believers. Think about this for a second. Adam is told in Genesis 2.15, okay, listen to this. Listen to the echo. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to serve it and guard it. Serve it and guard it. That's exactly what the priest was told to do, right? The priest was taken and put in the house of God and said, serve it and keep it. Guard it. Hmm. Adam's put into the garden, which was the first house of God, and he's told to serve it and guard it. Right? Man was made to be a priest. Now, we've been restored to that because we had fallen and Jesus has come and made us the priesthood of believers. So we're all priests now. All of you now are priests of God. And you, and you have a task. And your task is to guard and to serve. Guard and serve. Guard what's been given to you and serve the one who gave it to you. That's our task as human beings. In God's house, whether it's the garden or the temple or the church, God has made a house servant. His name is man. And man is made to serve God. Right? We're his office boy. Put it in crass terms. We're the house servant. Right? We're the one that goes around. What can I do for you, master? What can I do for you, master? That's the way that we're supposed to live. Now, I don't know about you. That is certainly not how I live. I don't go into Starbucks and think, okay, I'm going into this place. How can I serve you here? I don't. I'm going in to serve myself. Right? I'm going to get me a giant thing of coffee. And, and so much of our lives, we just go about it without consciously thinking about what we're really doing. But we're slaves. We're bond servants. 
The service of the Lord is what we're about all the time, and that's worship. Now, that, if you haven't noticed yet, that's very different from the life that we're usually called to even as Christians in the modern church. Adam was the first high priest. You now are all priests in the same vein. Now, Jesus is the model of, huma- of humanity. Okay? He came in the image and likeness of man so that we could see how a man is supposed to live. And there's a few interesting things about him. He quoted a lot from Deuteronomy, and he knew this verse from Deuteronomy 3.16. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve. Now, if you go through and you see this word serve all through the Old Testament and think that what it means actually is worship, it changes the meaning of the word for you. Go in the Old Testament, take out the word serve, add worship, and you're going to learn a great deal about worship. But Jesus understood this from Deuteronomy. The Lord you shall serve. Jesus' life was defined by service to his father, as he said in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And in John 6, 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He was the perfect human. He came in the image and likeness of man to do what man was made to do, which is serve God in the house of God, in the courtyard, in the marketplace, with unbelievers, with believers. He lives the perfect human life because he's serving the Lord his God, his Father, all the time. All the time. Serve and guard. Serve and guard. King David understood this. He understood this. He said in Psalm 84.10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of man. Or the house, sorry. <laughs> That's not what it says. <laughs> I got a little excited there. Let me go again. Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, we pass over a lot of these things. They sound quaint. They sound cute. But David, who's the king of Israel, understands what man is to be. He understands man's role, a doorkeeper in the house of God. Now, I don't know about you, but even that, I'm like, well, is that really all? I mean, a doorkeeper? How about, you know, at least a valet, right? Or a butler. Even a butler sounds better than a doorkeeper. But... But David gets it. He understood his Lord. He understood God. I would rather be a doorkeeper. He's satisfied. Take the kingdom from me. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than live a thousand in the tents of the wicked. Because he understood what man was made to be. Now, furthermore, this last proof text here, Paul's favorite designation for himself actually was a slave to God. He calls himself a slave of God. And he is proud to say it. He's like David. He has no shame in saying, I am a slave of God. In fact, in their day, to, to, to get that title was actually a title of honor. Okay? He refers to himself this way constantly. Romans 1.1, Galatians 1.10, Philippians 1.1, as well as referring to other Christians as slaves because he's trying to honor them. He, he refers to the one in 1 Corinthians 7.22, Ephesians 6.6, 6, Colossians 4.12, 2 Peter 1.1, that's actually Peter who says it, Jude 1 is another place. Revelation 2.20. See the other apostles do it as well. When you're going to give somebody some honor, when you're going to give them some recognition, the greatest thing Paul can think to say is they are a slave of God. Yeah. 
Now, Luke 17. Jesus is teaching the disciples about discipleship in Luke 17. And he gives them this example of the Christian life. Listen. Luke 17, 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The servant spends all day doing the work the master has ordained for him. And when he returns, he's given a long list of things to do after the work he's already done. Change your clothes and put on the right ones because when you're serving my table, it's different than when you're working in my field. Feed me. And then when, I'm, when you're done, you can eat. And the servant would be un, especially unworthy if he said, whoa, 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 where's mine? I've been working all day. Right? How many husbands? You come home. Right? All I want is wifey to rub my feet. Theo to grab me a rolling rock from the fridge because it's cold. I want everyone to go around. Dad's home. Right? This is us. Wives do the same thing. You've been there with the kids all day long. Goodness gracious, he's finally home so I can do, go off and do some things for myself. Right? How many of us, I mean, there's a much darker side to this as well. I knew a guy who was an alcoholic. And he actually had quit drinking for quite a while. And then he started drinking. He, he, one night he, he got drunk, and then he's confessing it to me. And I said, well, why, why? You, you, were, you, were, you were doing so well. Well, I thought I deserved it because he'd done so well. And, and it, was hard to get, it was hard to get too uppity about that. But I was like, isn't that how we think, right? I've done all the good the stuff I'm supposed to, so I'm going to get a little something for myself now. And it's extreme and it's not. It's low level, it's high level. But we really are, right? We're like the servant or unlike the servant. We come in from the field and we want to just get to our thing. But that's not what God's called us to. You're a slave. You work and go to work all day long. Come home. Husbands, love your wives. Raise your kids in fear and admonition of the Lord. Wives, you're all day with the teaching and the dishes and the clothes and the errands. And hubby comes home. You finally get the kids in bed. And then he's got needs. He wants to talk about work. He's got a list of things he's got to go over with you. We have a problem with this fundamentally. We don't want to be slaves. We don't want to be bond servants. We want to be sons. You, but you serve as a, right? You start off as one and he takes you higher, right? We're becoming sons of the living God, right? He, he's come out, he sent the son to make us sons and daughters, but he's still in the process of doing that, right? There's stages to this. He takes us from glory to glory. We, right, we, want to, we hear all of this and we jump right to the sun part. We're not comfortable going with David and saying, I, hey, he picked me, I just want to be a doorman here. No, we, want, we clamor for the sun part. We want the rewards. But we're bond servants, we're slaves. And, and the fact that we're not content with being merely that says a lot about where we're at as individuals. Obeying the commands of God is worship. 
Doing the Lord's work is worship. Rather, it's loving your neighbor as yourself, forgiving someone, making disciples, raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, praying without ceasing, obeying your earthly master at both your job and in the government. You might be wondering, isn't worship just adoration? That sounds better. Can't we just sing and call that worship? But that's not what it is. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's calling us to some, something grander, something greater, and frankly, something more difficult than simply gathering once a week to sing at him. As Scott was pointing out this morning, it is, it is a little weird that this is what we do. We come up here and stare at the wall and sing together. Right? And so many of us are like, I worship God, sure. But when you leave here, are you going in the service of a king? Are you a slave? Or are you concerned more about you know, doing some good and then getting your prize? It says, present yourself, all of yourself, all of you, all of your time, all of your resources, all of your thoughts, all of your actions, your whole self, all your members, as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice that gets burned up and turned into something else. That comes later. Right? You'll be that sacrifice in the end where you're transformed from this to the new body. Right now, you've got to be a living sacrifice. You, li- you live and work and breathe and move in the household of God. And in this house, you are his servant. And, and we need to embrace this. There's joy in it. There's rest and peace in the service of this king. Better to be a doorman in the house of God and live for a thousand years in the tents of the wicked. Everything you do ought to be an act of worship, as an act of service to God. Present your whole life on the altar of Jesus as a life of service to him. Okay, That's what worship is. Now, secondly, let's consider what is a God? What is a God? Now, this might throw some of you, right? I am, here's a Bible. This is a Christian church. To ask what a God is here seems a little weird. I'll give you that. It should hopefully seem a little weird. Now, and I, and I just want to point out, I know that there aren't more gods than one. There's one true living triune God. Got it. I'm with you. But the problem since Adam has never been that there are actually other gods, right? Allah is not an actual God. The problem isn't that there are actually other gods. The problem is that we treat created things as we ought to treat the one true living triune God. Okay? The problem isn't that there really are idols. The problem is we turn things into idols. We treat created things with the reverence and respect and awe and service that we ought to reserve for the living God alone. That's the problem. Right? And so you have other gods. You have other gods besides the living God. Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 9 says this, okay? The Lord knows that we make idols. He knows that we create other gods. This is why he's constantly warning us against it. He says this in Deuteronomy 5, 8 and 9. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Funny how that pops up again. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A God, a God, is that from which you derive your greatest comfort and your greatest security. Does money give you security? 
Is your solace found in the bottle or in the trowel? Are you secure in your self-image because you are fit and you are healthy and you are attractive and you are funny? Tim Keller defines an idol as anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. G.K. Beale, again, defines a God as whatever your heart clings to and relies upon for ultimate security. That is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make God and idol whatever your heart clings to or relies on. The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Now, God did not make other gods. Man makes other gods. And the Lord our God has to deal with that. Okay? He created angels. He created man. He created animals. He created stones. He created gold. He created everything in this earth. He didn't make other gods, though. That didn't happen until we came along. And then we fell. And then, goodness gracious, we will make anything into a God. Because what do we need? We need security. We need comfort. We do, because this life, I don't need to tell you, we need comfort. And whatever we look to for that comfort, that is your God. Now, we run into a little bit of a problem here. Because if I were to go around and ask all of you, who is God? Every person, man, woman, and child in here, at least even due to pressure, would say Jesus Christ, right? Who's God in your life? Well, Jesus is my God. But I want to get beyond the creedal sense of this here. I want to get beyond the I mentally assent to Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Functionally, practically speaking, six days out of the week, what or who is your God? What gives you comfort? What gives you security? What do you look to? I want to know on Tuesday morning when you get up to face a new day, your security and your comfort is what? On Thursday night when you lay down and sleep, the sleep of the justified, what justifies you? Your bank account? Your awesome post-pregnancy bod? The adoration of coworkers and peers? Your spouse? Your view of yourself? The number of Facebook likes you received on your awesome photo of your food? What? The Seahawks' first win? I could go on here all day long. The stiff drink, the joint, the medication. You sleep the sleep of the justified, but what justifies you? You're people who go out, you get comfort from what? You're secure in something, what? See, again, if I were to call you up, all of you, one at a time up here in front of everyone, I started asking you questions, right? We would all learn that you're a worshiper of Jesus, right? I mean, come on, you come to Sunday service most of the time. I worship Jesus. That's, why, that's what they do there. But if we got into your real life, if we got into your, right, Monday through Saturday life, what's giving you comfort? What are you serving? What gives you security? Think about your workout routine, your homeschool prep, the amount of time you cook and work and sleep and watch movies, the amount of time you offer up to Facebook and Twitter and blogs and sports center and porn and eating, the compliments you are chasing, the time you spend pontificating in the comments section online. What or who are you serving? Do you spend more time serving your spouse or the Lord? Your career or your family? Your family or Jesus? Your vacation plans and workout goals or the lost? Who are you serving? Are you so focused on MSG and high fructose corn syrup and trans fat that you have neglected the weightier matters of the law? 
is pasteurize the unforgivable sin. Right? We get intense about stuff, don't we? Sometimes uh, there's been times where I thought the unforgivable sin was having a baby in a hospital because some of the women who have home births are very intense about it. Right? And, and again, when we argue about worship, what do we usually argue about? Why, is that, why do they have a backbeat on this music? Why is there a drum? Where's the 18th century hymns? Which is funny because music goes way back further than that. But anyway, right? We get worked up about stuff. We're serving things. We're guarding things. We're, but what? Whatever you serve, whatever you guard, that's your idol. Whatever gives you security and comfort, that's your idol. That's your God. Think of how often God is referred to as a high tower, a rock, fortress, a protecting shepherd, a jealous husband. He tells us to put on the full armor of God. He uses this language all the time because he knows what we need. We need comfort. We need protection. We need security. We need to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan said. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's a beautiful thing. That's what he's looking for. He's looking to be the thing that comforts us in life and in death. The only true security and the only true comfort is God because he's the only one good enough and he's the only one strong enough to provide it. He is powerful enough to overcome even our wickedness, to turn our sin into the glorious victory of love on the cross. But what is the thing that if I took it away, your life crumbles? goes right out the window. I can, think of, I can think of what it is at this point for myself. We all have it. If I took something away from, from you, if I took it out of your life, would we ever see you again? Just disappear. We have idols like that. There is something in your life that gives you that much comfort and security, that you are spending your time and your money guarding and keeping and protecting it. And ladies and gentlemen, it's preventing you from following God wholeheartedly. When your financial future wobbles, how do you react? When you argue with your spouse and are really let down by them or you really let them down, what do you do? What would happen if we took away your internet connection? I don't even want to fathom that one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to. I don't, yeah. Right? What if you found out you were a diabetic and had to give up pumpkin spice lattes? I'm not, I heard someone say this earlier in the week. Take it all. Just leave me the pumpkin spice lattes. And I thought, when you stop and think about it, that is a terrifying thing to say. Right? And there's other things. Right? I will go through this whole work week, and I will put up with all these obnoxious people just so I can go home and have scotch on Friday. I don't know how many times I've said it. Just Friday nights, it's blue bloods and it's scotch. I, I'm just looking. That's like, get me there. Please, God. <laughs> right? And then this, is, this has actually happened. I, I have gotten in fights with my wife. I've lost it because I didn't know it, but they canceled that show that week because it was really all I was looking forward to. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Now, I almost changed what I was going to preach about. <laughs> all right, let's back up from the meddling. I can't even handle it. Let's talk about the Heidelberg Catechism. That seems safer. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, I can't even see this. 
<laughs> Thank you, Jesus. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let's examine this question for a moment. Right? These are some serious theologians, serious ones. I've read some of the other right, confessions and catechisms going on at the time. It's, some, it's a serious time asking serious theological questions. And their first question is, what gives you comfort? Not only what gives you comfort, what's your only comfort? Because they're assuming you should only have one. Right? They're assuming that's what we need. They're starting their entire theological worldview on this question. What gives you comfort? Why comfort? Why not hope or love? Why not purpose or Lord? Why do they ask us about comfort? The catechism begins with a much more serious question than mere creature comfort, though, okay? This word that they use, trost, which is translated as comfort, means something a lot. It's, it's difficult to translate from German into English. There's more to it than just mere comfort. It means certainty. It means protection. It means solace. It means security. Right? It's a bigger question than just like, oh, I ate some mac and cheese, the comfort food, and I feel good. Right? It's a deeper question than that. What enables you to endure life and to face death? What gets you through the day and what makes death not scary? We live in a world where we expect to find comfort in possessions and pride and power and position. But the catechism teaches us that the only true comfort comes from the fact that we do not even belong to ourselves my comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. We can endure suffering and disappointment in life and face death and the life to come without fear of judgment, not because of what we've done or what we are or who, what we own, but because of what we do not possess, namely ourselves. Romans 14, 7 through 9, for none of us lives to himself. Why? Because we're slaves. This is what Paul is saying. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of, de of the dead and of the living. We belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. That should be our only comfort. You don't need any more than that. You are not your own. You are a slave of the living God. He has bought you at a great price. And he wants you to serve him. Because what he wants, what he's willing to do, is far greater than what you want or what you're willing to do. This is what we have to understand. And all of our trouble, all of the lack of comfort that we experience stems from a lack of faith in this truth, that we are his our faith falters and we seek solace and comfort and security in things that we can touch and see. This is an old problem. Some of the Israelites were struggling in the desert because they wanted gods they could see and touch. And so they built golden calves. Now, there's something interesting here. God understands this and so he gives us symbols. He understands we need something to see and touch. He needs to feed our faith and so he gives us the life of Jesus Christ. They touched him. They saw him. They heard him. And what does he give us here? He gives us bread and wine. You can hold salvation every week in your hands. You can remember. I remember coming up out of the water. I remember it. I remember being soaking wet. 
And then this guy started hugging me who I'd never seen before. He was just so happy when I was baptized. It was amazing. His name is Mike Wilkerson, I found out later. But I remember that. I remember being soaking wet wearing a Starbucks T-shirt. It was the only black one I had at the time. I, it's a physical thing. It gives me comfort. It gives me security to know that I went down in the water and I came back up. He gives us a Bible. Think about it. He doesn't give us word of mouth. He gave us documents that we can hold and see and touch and read over and over again. He understands we need something to hold on to. The problem is we will make things with our hands to hold on to that aren't him, that are not the means that he gave us to worship him. Because this and this is an idol forge. We will make idols out of anything. The problem isn't our need of comfort. Our problem isn't physical objects. The problem is we make physical objects of things that are not him, that he did not give us. That's the problem. What gives you security? What gives you comfort? What do you cling to when you are being sifted like wheat? What thing can you not live without? What do you cling to when you're being sifted like wheat? What is the thing you can't live without? That is your God. Now, the last thing that we need to look at, the effect of worshiping God, the true God or the false God. What does it do to us? At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. We reflect things. It is not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. Worship makes you like the thing you worship. God made us as imagers, reflections, who worship. So what we worship is reflected in our lives. Does this make sense? He made us to worship, and he made us little tiny mirrors. So you take your mirror and you put it in front of objects that are idols, you're going to reflect the idol. You're going to absorb that, and that's what you're going to look like. That's what you sound like. That's what you talk like. It's how you're going to act. Isaiah 44.9 reads this, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the images they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Okay? Those people who worship the idols can't see and they can't know. This is crucial here. And to really flesh this out, Psalm 115, verses 2 through 8. Psalm 115, verses 2 through 8. Listen to this. This is remarkable. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. If you make a blind, dumb, speechless idol, you become like that idol. You become yourself blind, dumb, speechless. This is why Jesus comes in to the chief idol worshipers, the people who should have known who he was but didn't because they had a lot of other gods. He comes to them and he's constantly telling them, you are blind. You cannot see, you cannot perceive, you cannot understand, you cannot hear. He's talking to them because they've worshipped idols and become like those idols. When you worship dumb things, you become dumb. When you worship blind things, you become blind. Right? Can a gold statue say anything to God? 
When the hordes come to your house, what are you going to do? Throw it at them? Is it going to get up and fight? Right? What I, I mean, so think about the idols you have. Your awesome physical physique, perhaps. Right? It can go like that. People in this room know all about that. In an instant, it's gone. One car wreck. Right? One accident at work. One slip of the knife, I know somebody, and their hand is not the same anymore. And so their recreational tennis playing is over. Right? And they took a lot of pride in it. In an instant, the things we make with our hands are gone. Now, the living God, on the other hand, he speaks, and his word doesn't come back empty. He speaks, he makes galaxies. His word is powerful, right? When we then worship him, that's what we become like. Our words have power. We can see, we can understand, we can hear. Just to round this out, I I mean, there's lots of things I could say about this, but nobody puts it better than N.T. Wright in this book called Surprised by Hope. He says this about idol worship, about the effect that worship has on us. It's funny, I didn't mark it. This is what he says. Listen to this very carefully now. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only back to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors and debtors, partners or customers, rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. My suggestion is that it is possible for human beings so to continue down this road, so to refuse all worship, worship, I'm sorry, to continue down this road, so to refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of the true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that after death they become at last, by their own effective choice, beings that were once human but are not, creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image. That's what's happening to us. We're either becoming, like Jesus, eternal, resurrected, at one with God the Father, Son, and Spirit, or we are becoming like the things we we worship, the idols. It has an effect on us. Now, are you on do you do you have a difficulty spiritually hearing and seeing? Do you have difficulty spiritually understanding the things that you hear? Are you lacking in joy, lacking in comfort, lacking in hope? Are you lacking in the things that Christ has in abundance? Because if you're worshiping him, you're becoming like him. What's his is yours. The problem for many of us is that we are so full of idols, so many all around us all the time that we can't hear the Lord our God. We don't see him. We don't understand what he's doing. And until we slay those idols, until we say, God, why can't I follow you? And we watch him put to death these idols. Until he does it, we are going to continue to be blind and deaf and dumb. Because I've already said it. We come here every week, most weeks. We worship God. 
Well, this sermon makes all the sense in the world, then. I'm a worshiper of God, the true God. Now, what about the other six days? What are you serving? What gives you comfort? What gives you security? Jesus came in the image and likeness of man to remake man in the image and likeness of God. He came so that we might see how a true human lives in the service, the worship of the Father. He came in our midst so that beholding him, worshiping him, we might reflect him. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Set Christ before you and serve him alone. Set him before you as your only comfort and security, as your only motivation, and beholding him, you will become like him. You will hear, you will see, you will know, you will understand, you will perceive the things of God. You will honor God. Dylan said you got to serve somebody. And Jesus said you can only have one master. The problem is we have many masters. And so what it leaves us with is, is an uneven Christian life, confused Christian life. Now, there is a real danger to this kind of self-reflection, and it's what gave me a lot of pause to even talk about this. But we are all of us too comfortable, too placid, too self-deluded, all of us together. Why do you think you are a worshiper of Jesus? Where do you get off designating yourself that way? And if you are searching right now in your heart, in your mind, your life for some proof, some reason, then it's about time that somebody asks you this question because the reason doesn't reside in you. Right? I ask you, why? Why do you call yourself a worshiper of God? How many of us started looking around in our own lives? It's about time that we had this conversation, I think. If your comfort and security isn't Jesus, then you have idols in your life, and they have to die. They have to. What are you serving? What is your only comfort in life and death? He wants you. Jesus wants you. He wants you to follow him all the way to resurrection glory. He wants that. He's not putting those idols in your way. And he will lead you there. He will at whatever cost to him, at whatever cost to you. But you have to be willing to lay it down. The grace of God costs something. You can't have it and your idols too. You can't. You can't have two masters. There's a road to hell and there's a road to heaven. He leads you down one. Idols lead you down the other. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> this isn't personal. I'm with you guys, right? The torpor has set in. It's, I'm hard of hearing. I want to encourage you guys now with the, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, okay? This isn't about me versus you. This is us. And I, and I want him to speak to us. And this is how I'm going to finish it with this story that he told, this story that he told about his own children. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. 
I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. When the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer with the exact same answer. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? and did not minister to you, serve you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. They both called him Lord. Some were his servants. Some served him in prison, and when he was hungry, and when he was naked. And some didn't. And that was the difference. You can call him Lord as the day is long. Serving him. Giving your life to him. That's the difference. That's the difference maker between the two. And so I implore you now, brothers and sisters. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spirit of worship. And amen. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for the gospel. You came and you were humiliated. And then you were glorified. We pray, Father, that we too may be humiliated, that we may die to ourselves, that we may go down, that you may lift us high. Father, we are idle factories. We're full of of service to things that cannot protect us, cannot feed us. We're slaves to them. And I pray, Father, that you would free us all, that you would return us to the joy of our salvation, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would show us what prevents us from following you, Father, and that you would give us the strength to cry out to you, that we might again, as we have always been, be saved by Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, and amen.